This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast focused on all topics that sit on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Vaden, here today with Andy Byrne and Raul LeBlanc. Raul has been on this show many times, and I'm glad to have him back. And Andy, I think this is uh, the, the first time that we've got you, so, so welcome. Thank Thanks, you, Hill. So we are here today to uh, almost do kind of an, an unanticipated part two conversation to the one that uh, had last week or two weeks ago with uh, um, several weeks ago, I guess, with uh, Reed and uh, Kareem on oil supply. And as we talked about oil supply, really the, the, the central theme that kept coming back was, um, you know, that there's a that there's a hold the line mentality. Um, from these operators and, and in some respects from, from OPEC as well um, as we've gone into a period of more stable prices or higher prices but there's that uh, supply risk that they could change it all to, to the to the negative of prices and, and Andy you had published a report to clients this week with a reference to, to the the show Temptation Island um, that, that a lot of these operators are sitting here with cash flows uh, in a sense you know met- metaphorically holding hands of you know, we, we gotta we we gotta hold the line. Looking at the oil, uh, the the oil operators specifically, and, and the reinvestment rate being as low perhaps as we've seen it, you know, in, in decades. And I think you released it released a similar report on gas operators as well. I guess first, but before we get into the summary of the reports, is does the gas operator report, which I haven't read, have a have a sitcom reference or, or, or a reality TV show reference in there? <laughs> no, I went straight on that one. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, you know, maybe, maybe could, could you summarize some of the, the, the information that we've come from those reports and, and how that's relevant to that supply discussion that we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago with Reed and Kareem? Yeah. Um, for the oil-focused EMPs, what the study found was in the first quarter, the uh, median cash flow reinvestment rate came in at 43%. So that they're vastly underspending cash flow. Found that 75% of the companies in the group spent less than 50% of their cash flow during the during the quarter. So you talk about solidarity, there was total solidarity. Nobody was spending anything close to, to cash flow. Now this was a lot, you know, less than what they have been doing historically. I mean, using a cash flow reinvestment rate as a sort of a target spending target for the companies that's new. Mm-hmm. And they've been sort of guiding right now for a long term guidance of 70 to 80 percent of cash flow. They'll be they anticipate spending longer term and uh, with, you know, the rest of it as sort of return to capital to shareholders kind of thing, dividends and share repurchases. And so coming off of last year's challenges and the pandemic and everything we anticipated the group spending less than that target range we were thinking more of something like 60 percent for this year so right now we're running well below that now this is really 
two to three years, maybe longer in the making. I remember you and I were talking a couple of years ago and, and looking at executive comp and all these things that were changing as a sector and in some ways what was uninvestable or were considered uninvestable but by others. And it seems like executives have really kind of gotten the message. Absolutely. You know, they've totally changed things around. If you want to take a little bit about executive comp, you know, back in 2014, that kind of time frame back then, a cash bonus objective plans, which are all spelt out in the SEC reporting, they were overwhelmingly weighted to just straight volume growth. So managements were getting bonused. They were getting paid for volume growth. Well, now that is completely flipped. And so rather than dominating volume growth objectives, returns, return of capital to shareholders and free cash flow are now dominating the weightings of their cash payouts. So they tell the investors, you know, we're going to focus on these things. Well, now they're getting paid to follow those things. So their incentives are aligned with what investors are telling them to do. Which is a real shift role that, that you know, when I think back to, to this from, you know, kind of decades ago, when, when you hear these quarterly calls, that there was almost a kind of a gunslinger or swashbuckling type attitude with because these companies were growing so fast and so furious and, and all of the metrics folks talked about were around things like dollar per acre with, with all the upside, you know, of, of that underworld acreage. Looking at some of these quarterly calls, uh, you know, the, the, this first quarter of 21, the, the whole narrative has become one of prudence. And uh, yeah, you know, I'm sure there's exception. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. So there's a couple of things that, that, that have really happened. And, you know, as Andy points out, they were on their way to this for a while. But it was a little bit like St. Augustine used <laughs> to say, Lord, give me give me chastity, but not quite yet. Right. So they they were they were going to get there. Uh, but they're like, yeah, in another couple of years, we'll be there. Well, the pandemic really actually accelerated this process for, for two reasons. Number one is their base declines, you know, uh, came under control. They're considerably lower this year, but that's like losing weight by amputation, right? That's like, okay, yeah, <laughs> fine. I just whacked my production and, and didn't drill any enough wells last year. So that was painful to do, but it has a payoff this year. The second thing is that their capital is frankly, probably more efficient than it. We'll probably set a record this year for capital efficiency because they're drilling a bunch of DUCs and the service sector costs, which are rising, are still rock bottom. From, uh, from, from the downdraft, and frankly, there's a big oversupply of iron. So they got a couple of things helping them th this year, uh, right? And then the other thing is, honestly, of course, they got lucky on the price a little bit, right? So uh, we started the year, uh, and everybody planned on a budget. You go back to you know November, December, when people were actually planning budgets, and they were expecting something maybe high 40s, low 50s. Bam. All of a sudden now we're above 60, verging on 65, mm -hmm. sometimes higher. That is a lot of incremental cash. And so what, what's interesting is, though, is that they have not chased it. They have resolutely refused to, to bring up their activity level over the course of the first, you know, almost five months of this year and not get drawn into that. And that's the that's actually the discipline that Wall Street was looking for. It's easy to be disciplined in 2020 because you ain't got anything, okay? Right. Uh, it's a little bit more difficult when the money's flowing in and you could actually have options. And they have not done it. Um, and, and it's showing up in, in their results in the first quarter in a huge way. Well, that's sort of my Temptation Island reference. That's what that kind of gets to. And it's kind of like the longer we're at this high-priced environment, 
the greater the temptation is going to become. Exactly. And so for us is like following the pandemic year, most of these guys have to clean up their balance sheet. Of the large oil focused guys, there are only two companies that had strong balance sheets at the end of the year. So pretty much the whole group needed to clean up their balance sheet. And so these excess cash flows are going to allow them to accelerate that balance sheet repairs. And so we're looking at basically half the group exiting this year within the healthy balance sheet target range. And, and so is that, is that health limited to, to the oily guys or, or the, the, the gas report? Or are we seeing some similar repair um, on those gassy operators? The uh, need for balance sheet repair is even more dire for the gas guys. But but are they getting there as fast, Andy? I mean, we've got sixty-five dollar oil. We're still sort of languishing, you know, uh, on the gas price. It's not three fifty, right? It's it's. Uh, well, they're they're um, applying a lot more of that free cash flow to actual debt reduction because okay. they don't have. They hardly any of them are paying a dividend. Okay. So the dividend. Uh, obligations are are more uh, onerous for the uh, oil guys, so uh, the free cash flow is going to the debt reduction. But yeah, it's going to take a little longer for some of the gas guys because okay. their balance sheets were a lot weaker. Yeah. Okay. You know, and so you know, so the Temptation Island concept is: the longer uh, the high prices hold, the greater the temptation is going to be to start ramping up the spending. And so, if you've got a clean balance sheet at the end of the year then you've got that choice whether, okay, I don't need to clean up my balance sheet anymore. I might choose to do so, but now I've got some other free cash flow that I could allocate to grow. Well, and that's interesting. Yeah. And I was thinking about that. I mean, yeah, you're right. We've got a sort of near death experience last year. Right. And so people are like, uh, well, the, the best thing I can do is clean up my debt, right? Um, and, and so that's good. Then let's say, and, and our forecast bakes in to some degree a a slight reversion, not back to growing, you know, 10, 12, 15% a year, right? Which they could do, but toward growing two to 4%, I, I think, next year. And it brings up the question, Andy, what I'd like to, to get your opinion on is so I get to the end of some period. Let's say it's the end of this year or the middle of next year. Well, my balance sheet's in pretty good shape. In fact, I may even go beyond, well, no, let's say it's in pretty good shape. It's acceptable. So then I have three or four choices uh, of what to do with, with the incremental cash. Number one is I could make my balance sheet bulletproof. I could really go and, and store up for the future, allow me to more flexibility. That's one thing. The second thing is I can start doing dividends. I can start doing uh, normal dividends and, and worry I might not be able to follow through. Or, uh, or I could do these variable dividends that people are trying to talk about mm-hmm. and get you back, Mr. or Ms. Shareholder, from the top of the cycle and maybe take at the bottom. Uh, or I could buy shares, okay? And that depends on where my equity is. And then lastly, I could go more, more for growth. How do you, I know it's going to be different for every company, but in general, how do you see those four or five options? as appealing to to the companies given where they are and what they have well it's kind of interesting you ask that because we're seeing it kind of acted out right now is is that there are a handful of companies who already have that clean balance sheet so what are they doing devon and eog both announced variable dividend payments i think pioneer is also on the variable dividend train as well aren't they yeah they're saying but from what i recall they're saying at the end of the year 
they'll okay. do a look back and say, okay, and they'll do one at the end of the year. So I don't yeah. think they're going to be sort of, they're, they're, they're definitely on that train. The question is, when does it leave the uh, station? <laughs> on, the, on the gas side, Cabot raised its dividend, and Chesapeake, of, of all people, uh, <laughs> initiated a material dividend. So just the new Chesapeake, get this, uh, rewire your brain, has right. a clean balance sheet. Right. And a dividend, not a not a special dividend? Oh, uh, a dividend. variable dividend? Not a variable, a, uh, an annual dividend. And, and so you're going to be looking at a new Chesapeake, a disciplined Chesapeake. And so so what, I mean, what, what do we think about the, the, the variable dividend, dividends? You know, when I look at companies who, you know, announce a dividend, there, there's a real confidence because no one wants to cut a dividend, right? Right. There, there's a lot of, uh, I can go out with a, with a variable dividend because I'm not committing to it three years from now, right? Do, do we see that as a new normal or, or do we expect a confidence to increase and, and turn into to more stable, quote unquote, real dividends? Yeah, that's a great question because, and I think it relates to, to in my under my mind, I see it as an option for that excess cash use if you think your stock is richly priced. So, rather than doing a, feeling forced to do a share buyback, which really doesn't add any value because you're buying because you're you're overpriced, you can use that cash. You can put it to use, give it to shareholders in a variable dividend instead of buying hot. But when how much normally, credit do you think they'll get for the variable dividend? Um, EOG, when they announced it, they they jumped. So it'll be it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that works because it's all been kind of controversial. Because uh, if you follow uh, Cabot, they've been mm -hmm. griping that they've been doing all the right things. They've got the clean balance sheet, they're generating the free cash flow, they're returning it. They've got a dividend, they're, they're prior to Chesapeake, they were the only one in their in the gas peer group that had a dividend. And their, their, their stock was the worst performer of the last year. And that I assume is all because of the 100% gas exposure? Well, they, you know, they were underperforming all the other gas guys. Yeah. Oh, really? And they were yeah, doing the yeah, right thing, but it's the risk trade really, so. Which brings up an interesting point of, you know, at some point, does the does the buyback? I know you've got a lot of uh, evidence, but let's ignore evidence for the moment. Uh, <laughs> but but in, in, in theory, that would be seems to me the answer, right? If you're generating a lot of cash and your share price is not showing it, well, you can take action, right? If you think you're worth more, you buy back mm -hmm. your own company, right? Over, over a certain time frame. Um, does it do you think that and that's why, in my mind, the share buyback thing really depends on how the equities equities do, right, over the next eight quarters, let's say. And, and I was just curious, where are equities relative to where they were, you know, pre-pandemic, and also to where these companies feel like they should be as a normal company, maybe in a profitable industry? Well, you know, in the in Cabot specifically, everybody else in their peer group really got hammered because their balance yeah. sheets were so weak, right. and so. You know, naturally, those stocks, when everybody thought that they weren't going to go bankrupt anymore, naturally, those guys rebounded the most. And so they performed really well. And so temporarily, Cabot looks like it's underperforming everybody else. Sure. But in reality, they're probably they're, they're more richly valued than everybody else. Mm -hmm. The other guys are just catching up. It was the same sort of deal with Marathon, who they were trading at four or five dollars uh, last year. 
Then they went up to 12, 12 and a half this year. Same sort of same sort of question. All of a sudden, everything changed, and all those companies that were struggling got repriced. And so companies like EOG is in are just like in Cabot's situation. They didn't quadruple. They didn't double. Their stock price, you know, didn't go up anything like somebody like Marathon did. And yeah, so they, they were the safe choice, right? Yeah. Right. So, you know, company uh, investors, we, we always say, you know, how do they get investor interest back in the sector? Well, going from four to 12, which should do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, so. You know, Andy mentioned the, the comment to the effect of everything changed. Uh, and Raul, one of the things looking at Andy's report, you know, some of the you know high performing companies today have options. And, and we look at Devon, we look at EOG, we look at Conoco. They've got diversified onshore U.S. portfolios. Right. And implicit in that, I think, is resilience. And we talked uh, some time ago, Raul, about uh, the, the fragility of being a single play operator. But but that's what investors wanted. And, and they wanted to put together their own multi-play company by buying multiple companies. Yeah. Are, are we seeing... football team, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. You guys stick and be particularly good at one thing, and and I'll I'll take care of my diversification, right? And, and some of these diversified companies in the earnings calls were saying, you know, we got options. We can play the Bakken, we can play the Eagleford, we can play the Permian. Yeah, is that part of the everything change story, or, or is this, um, you know, should, should we look for more diversification? I don't think so. I think um, we'll continue to uh, see specialization because. Specialization works, right? I mean, you know, we, we talked about this, but if you look at the, the the world champion best decathlete ever, and you entered their times in the ten individual events of the decathlon, they are in, in the Olympics. They are last, absolute last. In uh, the one I looked at was in eight of the categories, and bottom half of the two that it didn't place last in. Point being, it is hard to do multiple things well. I think investors will continue to push this. The real deal is, I got a divergence in some ways of the, the the investor doesn't care in its nice uh, little fantasy football portfolio it doesn't care if you die it doesn't care if you get injured and and, and have to retire okay mm-hmm. it, because it's 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 focused on on the group right but you do right and the other thing is companies need, do need options again so that as as life happens and something upsets the apple cart i mean i think you see that a little bit in the uh the colorado producers right so one of the interesting things here will be whether state level risks start to arise right. and start to get make some gotchas. And so even though you might not perform as well as a specialist, you survive, which is another nice, I don't know, nice feature uh, for a company to do. Well, and Andy, when we're looking at some of the diversity, you, you mentioned before we started recording about the, the uh, I'll call it the deaths of some of the small cap, uh, mid caps, and, and increasingly this sector is the domain of larger companies. And that will be a mix of both large specialists and, and diversified um, large companies. Well, it's an interesting sort of thing that happened. You know, since 2014, we've lost two thirds of the mid and small EMPs in our coverage list, and so the demographics have changed in the industry with the large companies being much more dominant factor than it was during the heyday of the unconventionals, and so you're seeing this other trend is the 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 need for scale right. for for uh, efficiencies 
you know, capital efficiency is, is core right now. You know, it's a core objective for everybody to achieve. And to do that, you need to have sort of economies of scale. And you sort of saw that just this week in, uh, in Oasis in, in what they did. They, um, they divested their Permian and commented that, you know, it was very difficult to build scale. And so because now, they're in North Dakota you know, so and weren't able. So now they're back to being a pure play uh, Bakken producer. And they had made a Bakken acquisition earlier. And so yeah. they divest their Permian, which they could, well, they, it was very difficult to build scale for them in the Permian because they had to pay, you know, expensive prices. And so here they are saying, okay, we can't, we are one of the largest producers in the Bakken. We have scale there, and we just added to that scale. And so here you have a company being less diversified in order to become a, a basin master. And what is yeah. it? So, so the, you know, the other companies that, that we kind of flag there, EOG, Devon, and, and Conoco to pick three, do have that diversity. Is it their size that, that allows? Where's their advantage that allows them to compete uh, across multiple plays and play ways that Oasis can have? I would just say one is they're big enough that they have some scale in in each one of those, right? I think okay. you know, and you made a, a a point there at the end, uh, referred to the kind of basin master concept, okay? And it's the notion that eventually it's going to be dominated by two, three, four people and a bunch of little fry that run around and, and and may do well, right, for a while. But remember, we're in the phase of the unconventional revolution where mostly everything is known. And it's about, so it's turning into a efficiency of execution. Okay. And an efficiency of execution, it's interesting. The small guys sometimes do things more cheaply, but not on a, you know, a 500 well program over, over three years. That's the kind of thing where you're grinding down, you're getting a lot of efficiencies from, you know, standardizing things and, and, uh, and those kind of manufacturing mode principles. And I think that tends to favor scale. The other thing is to note, of course, that, here as the cost of capital may rise for the industry and as it becomes a cost of capital gain because the primary value addition is not by de-risking right not by turning $500 acre into $20,000 an acre stuff because it's already you already know it's either worth 20,000 or 500 so that those possibilities are disappearing and that means that it turns into how can i spend an enormous amount of money to develop all my puds efficiently, your cost of capital becomes your sort of number one driver. So bigger is better. So the way Devin and ConocoPhillips and those guys are competing is partly by having a corporate structure, which has enough heft to drive down its cost of capital, as well as having material positions in each one. I continue to see, you know, big companies with small positions in place, sell them out. Right. Out. You know, Chevron and the Marcells is kind of a good example. Well, you don't want to be. I think it's part of the thing that, that Oasis is thinking is, can I be a basin master in the Bakken? And I can't really get the scale. That's what they said, right? I can't get the scale in the Permian. And uh, so I'm not going to try. The danger of this approach is that you, of course, you're now in one asset and every day you're eating that asset up. And so you don't have the next plan. In some ways then, you know, if you start to run out of good stuff, you have a real problem, particularly if you, you last year you fired everybody in business development because like, why would I want to do business development? So, you know, it's what I call the hunting farmer problem, right? All of a sudden you're, you're a farmer and all of a sudden now you hunt something and your land is exhausted and you forgot how to.
So lots of interesting issues coming up. I think the, the key thing for them is, can I continue to deliver these kind of cash flows that mm-hmm. I had in the first quarter? Can I, can I make a business out of this because effectively the fundamentals well, they don't have to be at 80, but you probably need them at 65 or 70, okay, to continue to generate enough yield to attract investors. Yeah, well, it kind of gets to uh, inventory management, you know, mm-hmm. and it's kind of, and, it, and it, it's sort of your shrinking box problem, right? So that if right. you accelerate your production growth, you're going to accelerate right. your sweet spot exhaustion. So, right. you know, and that's what's different now versus before is now you're looking at more of a shrinking box problem versus a, you know, a rapidly growing box. And so, yeah. so you're, you, you've got to be disciplined in your volume growth plan in order to be a long-term basin master where you're not really growing your well-location yeah. inventory organically. So the other kind of related comment on that, that, that yes, there's a shrieking box of, of inventory. And I think one of the CEOs in the calls re- referred to kind of the, the position of oil companies today as entering a phase of, I think his words were maturing demand, uh, just given kind of the, the rise of low carbon energies. So, so we're looking at the business model of these companies. There's a lot of pressure from investors to, to, to quote unquote, go green. You know, oil companies are good at making oil. What types of, given the, the the relative success we've seen in Q1, Andy, what, what what do you is the business model built for kind of long term success here? Well, I, I would sort of differentiate between the EMPs and the integrateds. With the EMPs focusing or their response right now on sort of ESG concerns in the context of reducing their flaring, reducing their carbon footprint, their carbon intensities, sort of managing those kind of things that they control from that side. That's where the EMPs are generally focused on. Now, there's a couple uh, like Oxy and Denberry who are working mm-hmm. on the, the carbon sequestration kind of concepts, uh, enhanced oil recovery. But generally speaking, they're, you know the, the models are sticking to oil and gas. Now, you move off to the integrated then you're getting a real conversation about going into the sort of the clean energy space and they are nibbling on certain things and we have some research around that but yeah it's a sort of a clear question as to wh- what's the right way to go yeah you know Andy, it's interesting uh th- this whole concept is a great question hill uh, i would say this everybody looks at the pressure on oil companies to you know, prepare for the energy transition and to do this and do that and the change. And you look at something like the fire engine number one, right? Uh, Exxon Mobil situation, which I don't want to get into. But the thing I do want to say is that if you look at what the gripe of all of the activist investors is, is you guys have performed terribly. Okay. Mm-hmm. You've not made money for many years and we think the model's broken. Now, I think it's a, frankly, a, a leap of imagination and, and, and well, spurious, really to sort of blame the poor performance of the last five or, or seven years on, you know, you didn't prepare for the climate transition. Okay. That is not the, not in any way, shape, or form the reason for underperformance in the last, the last six or seven years. Those forces have not been big enough, and they will be big enough in the future, but that's not the case. My point is that if we continue to generate the kind of returns to shareholders that we saw in the first quarter, 
if these guys continue to have reinvestment rates that are low, and that you know, I think Andy's saying we're saying sixty percent, uh, certainly even lower is is, is uh, you know uh, possible in some quarters, probably higher in some quarters. But if you have that, in other words, if you fix your business model to make money in a way that's completely not related to energy transition, I think it changes some of the demands around energy transition, okay, and, and investors. Because then investors, it's an easy target for investors because you've underperformed and you they think you're not preparing for, for a future, right? It's very different if there's a trade-off involved, right? And it's a little bit of what we're seeing now, right? Energy's been the best performing sector, oil and gas, frankly, the best performing sector since the first of the year. Yeah, just ignore all the last seven years. But if you look here <laughs> now, you know, it, it is true that people who don't have it in their portfolio are not enjoying those benefits. And and the real question is not what happened in the last five months. It's the real question is, can this thing consistently make money? And one of the key linchpins of this whole thing, globally speaking, of whether the energy business makes money is if the US supply stays under control. And, and that's where the whole temptation island comes in here. If it remains under control, the rest of the system remains, in my opinion, almost broken in terms of the price elasticity of, of supply, uh, in terms of the responsivity. And it's been very much down to the U.S. spoiling the party for the last uh, you know, eight years. And so if that changes, the pricing dynamic changes, and that means that potentially these people can make money. Now, the only thing I'll say in addition to that is that's a tall order because they are on Temptation Island, okay? And we should not forget that all of these companies, while they look great now and, and investors may, may be happy, the Cabot fate may wait them, which is, I did everything you did and my shares are still not happening and maybe I don't want to buy back shares. In other words, the only way an EMP company as a price taker can actually make uh, assure that it makes more money is to make more volume. You don't have any control over product quality or differentiation or pricing like normal businesses, right? So how do you make more money? You produce more. And so they are in this prisoner's dilemma, uh, or if everybody, they're not cooperating, they're not talking to each other about this. Right. They're all just responding to investor demands. But it happens to be the same investor demand and collectively it is holding back. If that continues to collectively hold back, they, can, they will be set up for probably multi-year success, even in a declining price, demand environment. They will probably be set up. But if they blow it, and by the way, once they blow it once, it's like falling off the wagon, okay? Yeah, you screwed up the next several while. There will be another hangover from the base decline impact and some of those other things, right? So where I'm going is, while it looks good now, they are in this prisoner's dilemma. Discipline is not assured. They live on Temptation Island. And both time, balance sheet, and, and price are working against them in terms of that restraint. Yeah. Can there be... Um, Andy, you know, given all the risks of Temptation Island from, from 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 the other participants on the island that will influence, you know, affect me directly if everyone else starts getting tempted, does that scale? If I'm looking at a business in a maturing or declining demand world, selling widgets or whatever, I want scale that allows me to compete on cost um, and be kind of the best that I can be doing that one thing well. Do investors have investors recognized the importance of scale in a uh, in a maturing demand sector like this? And if they haven't, do we expect them to? Oh yeah, I think they do completely. 
I think everybody. I think the investors are aware. I think the uh, the managements are aware that you know it, it's it's efficiencies. It's everything Rogel said. You've got to have that lower cost of capital, and you got to have that higher operating efficiencies. That capital efficiencies. That's what's differentiating you now. You know, because nobody's out there finding new plays. So. All right. And, and, you know, just to let, we can wrap up here and, and maybe think about uh, the, the next quarterly calls, um, you know, t- t- Temptation Island. What, what was the reference that, that we've come back to several times here? Is anybody going to be left on the island uh, in the second quarter? What, 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 are we, what are we thinking? Is this what one quarter does not a trend make? Yeah, no, I think they're all going to be living happily on Temptation Island. I think uh, second half of the year is when it starts getting tempting. See what they do. But right now, what's interesting is the companies that have the greatest amount of temptation or the cleanest balance sheets and they've got the free cash flow, right now they're opting for that variable dividend and that bulletproof balance sheet. What's also interesting is so how companies uh, are responding. You're taking EOG on one hand and Pioneer on the other. Pioneer made that inventory accretive acquisition in the Permian, so enhanced their their basin master status, whereas EOG went international with some interesting opportunities. So they're doing kind of a contrary, contrarian, opportunistic kind of, of, of approach, expanding their opportunity sets set globally. So it's sort of an interesting contrast in how two companies who had the capacity to do something reacted. Yeah, it just to add, I think I agree with Andy. I think we're pretty safe for for this year, honestly. Okay, budgets are set. We're gonna rock and roll. They're gonna love the money coming in. Finish their balance sheet repair, whatever. We got a pretty bump, bump, big bump up in in 2022, honestly. Not in terms of growth, but in terms of spending because costs are getting more. You know, base decline slightly higher, fewer mm-hmm. DUCs. But in general, we still have holding line. I'm I most focused. Uh, I think we'll be okay again. In, in 2022, I'm most focused on 23 through 25, which incidentally is, is when, if there's an international gap in funding, we'll start to see some of those projects not come on from the COVID, uh, cancellations as well as, as some other delays. So I think that will be the, the, the time period where if the industry is going to lose discipline, it, it loses discipline. I think they need to establish a track record. That track record has to be at least six or eight quarters in my mind. And I think that's what most people think. And so they'll probably do that here in, in 2021 and 22. Well, in some respects, that could work to the advantage of 23. If all of a sudden, you know, you, you need that box, which isn't getting bigger to, to start delivering some volumes to, to make up for other areas. All right. If it meets the super, oh, one last thing. If it meets the super cycle, right? If we start getting prices of eighty-five and ninety, that means two things. Number one, it means that the world may actually need a lot more oil, and 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 so that's good. It also means that the 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 NPs then become in the very enviable position of being able to continue to deliver my twelve percent kind of yield, and I'm growing by another you know ten or ten or twelve percent, right? That's a, a place that they, they would all like to be, given the, the realities of the market. Our view is that the super cycle is less likely and, and, and that this kind of thing would probably help to put an end to it. But one thing investors are clearly doing, and I mean commodity investors in particular here, they are trying to understand the long-term price or the marginal cost right, of a barrel that will actually be added if the U.S. system has changed. 
And so that's an important, it's actually an important factor, not just in their equity performance and how that does, but in the commodity price formation itself. All right. Well, that sounds like a great place to, to leave it. Thank, thank you both for uh, joining me today. And Raul, it's always great to have you. And Andy, we hope you'll come back. Thanks. Sure. Thanks, Joe. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.